Hi, everybody. This is Roberta Fallon. And I'm Andrea Packard. And you're listening to Art Blog Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Andrea Packard today at Swarthmore, Gal uh, Swarthmore College, uh, the List Art Gallery, which Andrea is the director of. And we're going to talk about her current show, which is called Branching Out, Changing Approaches to Art in Wood. Um, it's a very large exhibit, 58 works, I believe, in the exhibit, and all the pieces are made from or of or about wood in one way, shape, or another. Speaking of which, there are many different shapes on view and many different sizes, from human scale to minuscule. And we want to talk about the functionality of the wood that you see in the gallery. A lot of the work is functional, it seems to me, um, and it's, it's pretty labor-intensive. Uh, Andrea, you were just showing me a video about wood turning, which I have never done before, but you had done when you were 12 years old. So tell that story, or 10 sure. years old, what was that? <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to go to a Montessori school that had a, a wood shop, and um, I guess it's more unusual now, but um, we learned how to make planters, and uh, we had a lathe, so I made candlesticks on the lathe, and um, loved the experience, and um, remembered it, of course, later when we decided to organize this exhibition, celebrating the myriad possibilities um, that come about when we're working with wood. We all live with wood every day. Some of us are lucky enough to be surrounded by trees, um, but all of us experience, you know, both manufactured wood materials and um, revered rare woods in, in, and so this engages us with some of those materials, natural resources, and the creative possibilities that they present. Definitely, and you're so right about those who are, you know, fortunate enough to live surrounded by trees and then others who live South Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, and nary a tree in sight for blocks and blocks. But yes, we sit on chairs made of wood, and we have tables made of wood, and things of that nature. So it's a natural, no play on word, um, kind of interest in wood that I think humans have and feel connection to. Um, tell me how this show came about, and and who represents the work here? Who? It's a collection of a collector, yeah. right? So we um, mount about uh, four shows a year by um, regional or nationally known artists. And usually I curate the shows myself. I, um, uh, but sometimes we work in collaborations with institutions or collectors or individuals uh, of note. And um, I meet once a year with members of the Department of Art and Art History, the faculty, and we look for shows that speak to our college curriculum, but also will engage a broader uh, audience regionally. So last year, as we were planning ahead, um, we remarked that um, we were about to launch a new makerspace at Swarthmore. And a lot of listeners might um, be aware that throughout the country, institutions are developing makerspaces, which provide a, a space for people to work with both traditional methods of woodworking or machine tool working and uh, newer digital methods. So these spaces um, allow us to 
uh, bridge these different technologies and exchange ideas with people across disciplines. So here at Swarthmore, we have engineers, physics majors, art majors, and many others, English majors, getting together, sharing ideas, learning how to use the CNC router, as well as some people are picking up a hammer and nail for the first time. So there, it, we wanted this space um, to be a, a place that uh, uh, could produce new kinds of artwork, and also um, this exhibit uh, provides kind of a library of information for. So as we were thinking, well, how can what wood artists could we bring to Swarthmore to launch uh, this new space and, and fire up our imagination? We thought of lots of different noted artists, some of whom are in this exhibit. And then I thought of Albert Lee Koff because he was just about to retire after many, many years serving as executive director of the Center for Art and Wood, which grew out of the Wood Turning Center, uh, an organization he founded with his brother um, e even earlier. And those, that organization, those two combined, have really profoundly shaped the art scene in Philadelphia, and particularly uh, the, the, the scene of artists and wood, the whole range of people who create from both functional uh, furniture or, or vessels to uh, exuberant, whimsical works. And so this, um, so we approached him, he was very happy to, to work with us, and he immediately suggested that um, he partner with Tina Lakoff, his wife um, and partner, who, with whom he has collected and, and done many projects throughout the years. And um, so, of course, we said yes, and uh, the three of us really worked closely over the past year to bring this together. Uh, as you can see, it, it is mainly comprised of pieces from his collection, um, from their collection, I should say. And, um, and there are um, approximately eight or nine works from the Center for Art and Wood that round out that, that gathering of, of art. So, yes, I looked at, and there's a beautiful catalog, we should say, that illustrates the, um, the work in the show and luscious pictures of um, what are really exquisite. I think you called some of the little ones gems, and they really are. You've got them in a glass case. They're very small, little sculptural things, and some are functional and some not. But um, So there's a great range of different types of wood on display and uses for them. Functional, there's some, I don't know, cups and things to pour out of and into and bowls. And we all know about wooden salad bowls, but I want to know about the cups. Do people really drink out of <laughs> cups that are made out of turned wood and seem really fragile? Sure, you can eat and drink out of wood vessels, and I think often people do, only when they are as beautiful as some of these are, we might prefer to just look at them. And there's a salad bowl here in the exhibit that Albert and Tina used for many years, um, and it's made one of the earliest works made out of plywood um, for that purpose. Um, and later on, the artist wanted to borrow it for a museum exhibit, and he realized that perhaps he would want to handle it with a higher level of care going <laughs> forward. Um, there's a pouring vessel by Michael Scarborough that's very beautiful. And, you know, I think that um, many artists 
love that intersection of something that's both useful and that um, takes our mind to another place that just fills us with wonder. And it's not always a, a matter of perfection. It might be um, the dialogue between the, the, the size of a, a vessel that fits in your hand so you can drink out of it and the decoration that reminds you of the water that would be contained in it or um, the river from which you might dip the vessel into. Um, all these ideas and forms become one in, in the best works of art, I think. Um, yeah, um, I think that's really true. And let's talk about works of art, quote unquote, capital A, small a, whatever. Uh, it used to be many years ago, and not so much anymore, that a woodworker was seen as a craft artist and was sort of relegated to second class citizen in the art world, the high art, capital A world. And I believe that doesn't happen so much anymore, but I think there is still something that speaks to the difference. I don't know if people who made these beautiful objects that are functional or not functional considered themselves artists? Would they call themselves artists? I think, well, there are many different uh, people represented in this exhibit, and each one might have a different answer for that. I think we're really lucky that we live in a time where there's such a plurality in the art scene, and these uh, arbitrary binary oppositions between high and low, fine art and craft are being broken down. And one of the great things about this exhibit is I think it, it gives you an arc uh, from some of the earliest works in the show were made at a time in the you know, uh, 70s when there, there was more of this, this gap between craft and fine art and, and some of the more recent works show uh, a much more experimental and hybrid approach and collectively the show really gives you um, a sense that anything is possible. So when people might decide to call themselves a furniture maker, it's not necessarily because they're stuck in that niche, it's just maybe more of a marketing thing. Or somebody else might say, well, I'm an artist because I'm not defined by my medium or the kind of vessel I make or the kind of tools I use. I'm an artist and I'm really about the ideas that um, I'm exploring. And sometimes I'll use wood, sometimes I'll use uh, ink and paper. Um, Susan Hagen, for example, is a great example of an artist in this show who has myriad um, types of works that she makes, and um, you know it's her versatility that that you can see both in the show and beyond it. Um, many of the artists here have that kind of range, and uh, we might just have one or two pieces by them. Um, hopefully, um, there's enough to inspire anybody, depending on your your ink inclination. Yeah, I think so. And I want to get back to plywood because we had a little conversation earlier about the use of plywood in in the woodworking world. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a time before plywood, right? Right. And there's now a time with probably nothing but <laughs> particle board and plywood. So we have some pieces in the show here that are very ingenious yeah. and talk about the plywood and well, the whole issue of the selection of wood. Right, and you know, as you as people know, it's a, a rough-hewn building material that's inexpensive, made out of chipped trash wood that then gets strengthened through layering and lots of glue, and one wouldn't normally associate it with fine art. 
Um, but Remy Vershow, for example, has a bowl from 2004 in, in one room that's elegantly curved and crafted on a, uh, tilts on an axis. And the, the plywood that one might otherwise disdain becomes part of this rich, varied pattern. It's not, it's a bowl, which is a familiar form, but the way he's turned it is, is very surprising and what might seem, um, you know, ubiquitous becomes really rare again. And so, like good works, I think, and, and same with uh, Ruud Olsonik's um, bowl from 1997. I think it's one of the earliest pieces in the show. That's the salad bowl that I was telling you about. Yes. You know, uh, that's birch plywood. And so that was one of the first really beautifully crafted forms. And then on the other end of the spectrum, in our large room, we have a piece by Rangeley Morton called Nook Table, which um, was made more recently in 2014. Uh, he had a residency up at Haystack and he was taking a workshop and he was working with a CNC router and taking a single piece of plywood and thinking how could he make a, a table out of this flat form. And the router, he designed a pattern so that the router would carve away the slats for his, um, his door, the doors, and, um, and then he used the openings that he carved away to, to kind of excavate that wood, and the, those openings are retained in the tabletop as a kind of pattern. And the whole thing can be um, uh, disassembled and reassembled um, in a, for flat pack shipping. Kind of like um, a puzzle, right? Yeah, kind of like a puzzle, but unlike IKEA furniture, the, the, um, the design is um, both um, elemental, um, but it also is sort of meta. It reveals his process and celebrates the, the combination of old and new technology, traditional joinery, CNC routing, plywood, which is of course very raw and cheap and throwaway, but the way he uses plywood um, makes it rare and special and unique. And nifty. I want to say there's yeah. a nifty factor Whimsical. that goes in. Yeah. Whimsical, nifty, it's just you have an aha moment when you look at something that is really beautifully crafted out of a sort of date classe wood and think, huh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. So resourcefulness is a theme throughout. Like, how can I get the most out of this one piece of plywood? How can I take, and plywood itself is coming out of the fact that we're deforesting our country and, and so we're, we're trying to glue the wood chips that we have together and, you know, and so on. So how can we take um, what we have and make it special again? And how can we take nature in all of its bits and pieces and reconnect ourselves to it as we go about our daily lives? Yeah, nature, we are very divorced from it these days, except in uh, abstractions, I guess. Yeah. And a lot of people think that is a, a new thing, mm -hmm. but actually, as, as many people know, the arts and crafts movement, when it came back about in the late 1800s in, um, in, in England, was very much of a response to the Industrial Revolution and its ter the terrible experience of people who are suffering from the effects of pollution and working in factories and feeling disconnect from the fruits of their labor and not having any creative agency in their work and just performing repetitive tasks. And so William Morris and other people were arguing for and putting into practice ways in which they could um, create 
functional objects that uh, nevertheless embodied a connection to nature and to labor and bringing that together. So um, that happened, and in, in the United States it happened as well, particularly on the East Coast. And, um, and in this area, Swarthmore is well known for that. The nearby area of Rose Valley is, is known as an arts and crafts center. And, um, and so we continue to need that in our lives as industrialization continues. And we again feel disconnected from um, all, all the, the things that we create or, or the way we are in the world. We have to reintegrate ourselves somehow. Speaking of Rose Valley, let's talk about Philadelphia's superabundance of uh, fine woodworkers such as Wharton Eshrick yes. and George Nakashima. You mentioned earlier to me that you had had a show of his daughter. Nakashima's yeah, actually George daughter. Nakashima showed here many years ago and then more recently after George Nakashima died, um, his daughter Mira Nakashima has continued to oversee the family uh, workshop and create beautiful designs of her own. So we had a uh, an exhibition that um, that brought together examples, both old and new, from the family, and um, that was one of our most wonderful exhibits. Um, you, I think, asked me earlier, had um, Albert Leacock ever met George Nakashima, and uh, he told me that he just um, uh, he did have a chance to connect with him, and in fact. Uh, when George Nakashima was taking uh, down a very, very large tree, uh, I believe Albert helped him connect with a sawyer that would um, help, you know, work with that huge piece of wood, and it became one of his very first uh, peace altars. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that no. series, but there are these vast um, cross-sections of enormous trees that um, that are monumental, and that Fill one when you stand before it. You're filled with the wonder at the beauty of the tree, and we were fortunate enough to have one of that those pieces in the, in our recent show. So yeah, he did get a chance to meet him mm. and work with him a little. Cool. So um, let's talk about the conundrum of the environment and the trees being gone, and people that love wood and want to work with it, and possibly it could be argued that they're assisting the trees in going away by making art out of wood? Well, I, I, I would argue that probably most artists are working with wood that's already being cleared anyway. I know so many people working on a lathe that, that will um, you know, be called up by a friend and say, hey, a maple tree came down on my property and it turns into you know, a whole series of bowls. Um, and of course we see um, the plywood pieces. Um, we see a lot of work here that's from scrap wood. But having said that, there's also there are also people working with rare mahogany. But I would say, of course, most deforestation is not um, coming because of furniture making. It's coming because of you know uh, industrial development and so on. But um, and I would I would say that one of the nice things about this show is it really does make you remember the variety of woods and how precious they are. Um, fortunate that the List Gallery is located on Swarthmore's campus, which is also an arboretum. So 
sitting, as I talk to you, behind you I see the Meta Sequoia Alley just outside the windows of the gallery. And, and so I feel this show is, is wonderfully appropriate to um, this wonderful reserve of, of varied woods that people can see. It's true that there is a great variety of wood here. There are some pieces, or one piece at any rate, made out of burl. Can you just tell what people yeah. tell people what burl is? Well, so Robin Horn has a piece here that I, I really especially like, and it's made, the burl is is usually a, a kind of a uh, it's sort of like a the the tree's equivalent of a bone spur. I I'm not an expert, so but um, it it. Uh, is not part of the wood usually used in fine woodworking. Um, but her piece, um, Can't Come Down, takes this kind of articulated surface and she's cut it into segments and then reassembled it into an open form that's like an aperture or a lens through which you can look. And um, the two sides are subtly angled. It has to be viewed in person, but one thing that's really special about it is its sense of texture and the subtlety of the joinery. Um, one thing you'll see when you come here is a range of joinery from really um, perfect, perfectly invisible joints uh, to, um, to the rough hewn uh, uh, pieces, uh, pieces of wood that are put together in Gord Petering's white bowl. Um, I think Albert Likoff wanted to include um, that piece which looks really raw, mm -hmm. because um, it was one of the, early on, a lot of woodworkers really insisted on a kind of perfectionism and, and really bringing out the perfect polish and wood grain. And um, uh, Gord Peterin's bowl really uh, loosened up the conversation among wood artists and said, you know, you, we, can, we can make a bowl out of planks of wood that aren't uh, perfectly joined together and I can, I, I can have a mixture of the raw wood and white paint, and it was sort of a freeing gesture um, that allowed a, a more wide-ranging conversation. For people who can't see it, yeah. we're looking at a bowl that is made of what looks like Jenga, the game Jenga pieces. <laughs> you know, little chunks of various sizes of wood that have been somehow joined together. I'm not sure if it was glue or if it's the paint that's holding it uh, together. Gesso, yeah, gesso. simply gesso. Wow. And it is very rough looking, and so it does stand out in a show of, I have to say, there are really perfectionistic looking pieces in this show. Um, exquisite. And, you know, I think there are some artists who really go to perfection. They need it. Yeah and they want it, and they seek it in their work and in everything. And then there are artists that purposely go the other way. You have someone, Gord Peterin, you might compare him to, say, the Kurt Schwitters mm -hmm. of, of um, woodworking. You know, he's so really abstract bringing... abstract painter? Well, and Kurt Schwitters being the German artist who created Mertz Bau and kind of really um, used elemental forms and found objects to kind of um, create a, a, a more mysterious environment, uh, assemblage, using assemblage um, as a, a main language of, of art, and upending, being subversive in, in, in his um, reaction to the controlling aspects of perfectionism. In his case, 
you know, the fascist um, aspects with that, that were associated with that. But um, yeah, so there's some pieces that are, are, as you say, really perfectly formed and articulated, and others like, like that, or also there's a wonderful um, piece by Mark Lindquist, Drum Song, that is a stool just made out of a stump in which the Sawyer's um, mark is still evident, and so it's the most basic, it's one of his, uh, Albert Leikoff's most treasured pieces. Um, uh, as he says in the catalog, he really had to pay for it on installment. But um, there are three stools in the show, and they kind of together show you really different ways of going about that project of how to make something that you can sit on that still evokes a sense of wonder. Um, let's talk about women woodworkers. You mentioned Susan Hagen earlier, and Susan is a well-respected and beloved Philadelphia artist who works variously, as you said, in paint and also carving wood. She makes exquisite figure carvings. So would you say that, and somewhere in the catalog, I think, um, Mr. Leekoff talks about how the field is changing and there are more women in it now than there were 20 years ago, let's say. So yeah. can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, and like a lot of fields that have been traditionally male-dominated, and uh, you know, when I was growing up, men tended to take wood shop, I think I was an exception, and women were funneled into home act, right? But, um, but that's changing. Uh, but today, there's still, you know, I think Albert said you know, something in the early days, more, more like 20% of the woodworkers or furniture makers would be women. But some of the most, um, in, you know, interesting perspectives come from women. I think a really interesting artist in the show is Martina Plagg, who has a piece called Purple Heart that has to do with the effects of gun violence. It's from this uh, collection of um, the Center for Art and Wood. And um, it's a bullet-shaped form uh, made out of wood, and the bottom section of it is sort of burnt out. Um, and then below it is a hand that uh, is a, a disembodied hand miniature grabbing what looks like a bullet made out of wood. And it uh, looks like an elegy to gun violence, and it's small and haunting. And right next to it is another piece she did that's more of a self-portrait of, um, it's a metaphorical self-portrait of the condition of the artist um, who has to find a way in the world which is precarious, and both creatively and financially. And so the, the piece is a, a log-shaped uh, form, and there's a bridge kind of reaching out from it but extending to no particular place. And on that little bridge are tiny little figures that teeter. And um, there's more to it. It's one of these pieces that you can't really reproduce. You have to see it in person. But it's a poignant expression of um, our tenuous existence, both on Earth and in relationship to each other. Uh, so a very moving piece. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting piece. It tells a story. Not all the pieces in the show are storytellers. Sure. Some of yeah. them are more abstract, or yeah. some of them have coded meaning. And some are um, storytelling about their function, I guess. A spoon yeah. is a spoon. And, right. you know, a, a 
picture is a picture. But I would argue that even some of the forms that seem not to tell stories do, if you look closely. For example, um, Irene Graffert has a beautiful piece called Bowl with Green Resin Lip, and she's someone who's worked with green woods, woods that are still really moist from having been cut recently. And of course, as you know, artists often bend wood through steam processes and, and moisture. And uh, what she did was she turned a bowl on the lathe, and then knowing that it would warp and change, uh, it being green, and, and uh, through enhancing that, um, she's created a story of change. So it's a bowl that is not a symmetrical bowl, but something that has morphed through the creative process, and she accentuates that with a green edge. It's a very simple, elegant um, statement about malleability and, move, and her dance with that, that she's creatively working with change. Hmm. So I guess there are women in the show. I'm thinking sure. of a show that I saw at the Fabric Workshop last year, I think it was, or earlier this year. No, it was last year. Ursula von Ryden. Oh, I saw that. Great show. Yeah. Yes, working different scale than most of the yeah. work in this show. Absolutely. But all, not all wood, but a lot of monumental carving going on there with a chainsaw, I believe. Yeah, she's outstanding. Yeah. And, and certainly, she, she's one of the leading artists of our time, male or female. And, and certainly, um, we, it, that show was on a scale we couldn't really accommodate here at Swarthmore. Um, but we're fortunate to be able to have so many amazing arts organizations in this area, and that wood is really increasingly becoming a part of it. And as Albert stepped down from the Center for Art and Wood, he turned uh, that role over to Jennifer Nava Milken, who's the new uh, director, and she, of course, is a woman and brings to it um, a really dynamic perspective um, and that cool. I think will be fun to watch. And is she a woodworker herself? She is not, but she, uh, she has a it. tremendous expertise, and um, I hope you'll have a chance to talk with her soon. And she has, the Center for Art and Wood has given a number of shows to a wonderful female artists such as Robin Horn and others who are doing great work in the field. Yuri Kobayashi, who's another woman in the show, is an outstanding designer and artist who has many different um, aspects to her work worth following. Great. Well, let's leave it at that. Great. This was wonderful talking yeah, thank to you. you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I've been speaking with Andrea Packard at the List Gallery. She's the director of the gallery at Swarthmore College and you've been listening to Art Blog Radio, which you can now hear on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Bye. Bye. See you next time.